Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. Well, a big hello. Welcome back to the wonderful place that we know as the Speakeasy Lounge. And today we have the irrepressible Jen Kelsall <laughs> joining us from Harm Reduction Victoria. And in fact, this is the first Speakeasy we've done where we've all been in the same place. Exactly. So that's very exciting. Actually in the same room. Yeah. Right down the line from wherever. So, um, Annie, do you want to tell us more about Jen and her, her history? I will. So, um, for those who don't know, Jen, uh, Jen Kelsall is the... Uh, CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria or HR Vic as it's um, often known as. Um, HR Vic is the statewide peer-based drug users organisation here in Victoria and Jenny is a highly respected advocate in the Australian drug users um, movement and rightly so. Um, that is due to her many years of hard work in the sector and uh, leading by example and being a strong and consistent representative for people who use drugs uh, in Victoria and across Australia. Um, now, as you can imagine, that's not an easy job uh, by any stretch of the imagination, particularly given how people who use drugs are uh, depicted and thought about and treated in society. So it is uh, quite significant that Jen has been uh, such a long-standing advocate in this area, and we're really, really pleased and privileged to have this opportunity to talk to Jen in the speakeasy. So, very warm welcome, Jen. Oh, I'm very um, happy to, to be here and thank you for your very kind words, Annie. Oh, you know, we've known each other for a long time <laughs> and it's, it really is a genuine pleasure to have you as our, actually our first uh, guest from a drug user organisation mm. in Australia and I think it's entirely oh, appropriate <laughs> that it would be you, Jen, because as I say, you are um, a long-standing member of the movement in Australia and, and highly respected. So, I'm going to just sort of uh, maybe kick it off with a slightly sort of, you know, more personal background edge for people who don't know so much about you um, or maybe know you and, and might learn something new about you. So you originally hail from the land of the long white cloud, <laughs> as they say, uh, where I've recently had a little sojourn. And uh, so New Zealand, of course. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, when you migrated across the ditch into Australia and um, and how you got involved in drug user organisations? Well, I I um I was part of a mass exodus from New Zealand. It's sort of quite an historic um, event that um, many many Kiwis left um, the land of the Long White Cloud <laughs> during the era of. A particularly unpleasant um, uh, Prime Minister Muldoon. Ah, yes. So I was part of that that sort of um, exodus. Uh, I um, I I I um, stumbled into um, injecting drug use um, after my arrival into in in Australia, I um, met the love of my life, and he happened to be a, a long term user of opiates. Mm -hmm. And I guess I would have followed him to the other end. Oh, <laughs> how lovely! Wow. <laughs> so it was very much mm. um, part of that love affair. I think initially. Uh, not not that I um, want to hold him responsible. It's not about blame. It was just that that was actually um, the the point of access. Mm -hmm. 
As far as working in the sector, though, I stumbled into that. It really was quite by chance. I, I, I had an academic background, and I um, fondly imagined when I became pregnant with my first child at some ridiculously young age. I think I was nineteen. Oh my God! That I was. Um, our life was just going to continue as before I'd enrolled to, to finish my master's thesis um, but I'd have a baby as well and um, I'd already been doing tutoring and a bit of lecturing and um, literature in New Zealand and so I had quite an extensive research mm. background even at that stage um, but my first daughter was born was spina bifida and so my academic career was put on hold and I never ever got to go back to it in, in the way that I'd always imagined and so fast forward um, <laughs> 10 or so years and um, I happened to stumble into um, a person who whom I, I'm aware whose name is not so widely um, recognised anymore, but Professor Nick Crofts. Mm -hmm. And it was at that particular Amazing. point in time, 1990, that Nick had just returned from the States where HIV was, you know, the, the sort of buzzword. Mm -hmm. And he had um, been working at the CDC. Yeah. And so he'd come back to Australia with all of these ideas um, <clears throat> and he managed to land a massive grant e even um, e even by hindsight but w w within its sort of historic con context it was an enormous amount of money given that it was his first um, funding sort of opportunity yeah. and it was Nick who um, partly I think due to his experiences in the state but Part of the model that he wanted to implement um, for this, it was a longitudinal cohort study of current injectors to look at HIV prevalence and incidence. Um, part of his model was to employ peers to, to do the recruitment and he figured that follow-up rates would have to be better if the research respondents were um, members of, of the interviewers' social networks, and he was right. I yeah. think that mm. it was because of that that we did have such a high follow-up rate, and we were <clears throat> we were actually funded to follow people over a five-year period, interviewing them every six months or so. Amazing. And and so it just happened that that it was at that point that the test for hepatitis C first mm, became available. Yeah. And so even though it hadn't been part of the original design of the longitudinal study, Nick just co-opted it into the mix. So we were actually t um, <coughs> test, testing bleeding people ourselves. So we were trained as phlebotomists. Yeah. And, and so that made the whole issue of testing a lot more appealing to people that we could actually do it in their own homes. Yeah. We were trained to do pre and post test counselling so we could deliver the results. 
And so we we actually had access to the first generation of PCR testing, oh. which by hindsight were, were very crude. Yeah. We wouldn't give an individual result until I think it was about the third PCR mm. test. The level of accuracy right. just mm. wasn't... Oh, I didn't know that. It, it was considered... <laughs> yeah. um, you know, appropriate for research sure. purposes, but as yeah, far as individual them. results, yeah, uh, we stuff, would give yeah. them, but it was always mm. within the context that we needed to do another one, yeah. to, you know, yeah, yeah. to provide a sort of a, a, a heightened sort of level of, of um, confidence in mm. terms of accuracy. Um, I, I was interested to to read myself described the other day as a pioneer of <laughs> but it was actually um, and I mean I'm aware obviously of the passing years and I've become <laughs> something of a dinosaur but it was actually Jackie Richmond who um, mentioned the other day when I was doing an interview with her so you have been here from the beginning yeah. and it hadn't actually ever occurred to me before, but I was around at the very start of the hepatitis C story mm, yeah. mm. in those very early years. Mm, when not many people can say that. Yeah, yeah. when the mm. test first became available. Yeah. And so how did you move from that into drug user organisations? Um, <clears throat> I, I guess that's been a fairly sort of gradual process. I... I um, because because of the work I was doing with Burnett, I developed relationships with um, members of, of of it was Vivades back then. Yeah. And from time to time, Vivades, uh, I was co-opted to do to sort of perform specific tasks and um, which and they were always things that I loved. To do, I, I got to design. I think the first um, overdose um, workshop, and and that program sort of still exists today. I mean, obviously, it's been, it's been, it's evolved and it's been amended in many ways. But it, it yeah. was the original design from all those years ago. It was it was around about. 2000, I think, yeah. and so it, it and I, I was on the board of Vivades um, on several occasions. So I guess it was um, natural progression. It was, it and just natural sort of um, friendships mm. and and I guess just natural allies mm. that that um, in terms of the the work that I was involved in at Burnett. Um, Vivades um, still ran a, a needle syringe program in Smith Street back then and so often I would use um, space there to interview someone. Mm -hmm. um, there was quite a close relationship between Nick's research and um, the local yeah. drug user organisation. And that was the, uh, the Centre for Harm Reduction? Was yeah. it called that? Then? No, no, well, it wasn't. Mm. Nick was head okay. of just. Um, it was called um, the Epi and Social Research right. Unit mm -hmm. way back then, mm. and then he established the Centre for Harm Reduction, reduction mm. as a spin-off from That's that. Right. Mm. Yeah. So with that huge view <laughs> of the past, you know, as much as things change, mm. some things stay the same, right? So, from your point of view, Jenny, what's the 
key things for drug user organisations or drug users on the agenda today? As opposed to back then? Yeah. Well, look, I think the first, um, my, the first comment I would make is that it, it's absolutely essential that we remain um, current and um, relevant to here and now, and that I think parts of what we do as uh, within the operations of our drug user organisations we do um, because we've done them historically and I think some of those things can easily become anachronisms. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that one of the the driving forces of this organisation is actually DanceWise, mm. which is a, is, a, is a completely discreet and different community from the um, cohorts that we've worked with traditionally and that, as you would well know, the dance party community does not associate strongly with injecting drug use mm. um, as much as there is injecting going on within it. it it's mm. not, um, it's fairly sort of secretive. Mm. <clears throat> um, but I, I do think that, and it's ironic because my when I first actually came to work um, at Harm Reduction Victoria, which is close to 10 years ago, <clears throat> um, at that stage, DanceWise was almost like a separate entity. There was such a cultural cringe on the part of DanceWise um, in the face of injecting drug mm. use, that they really didn't like the association mm. with HRV, and and they would do quite a bit to distance themselves from the from HRV as the parent organisation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I one of the things I think I'm most um, if you like proud, but also. Um, I think I've been instrumental in is integrating dance-wise within the organisation and so now I, I don't think there is any distance or much distance there at all that dance-wise is well integrated within the organisation as a whole and I think that it has gone from strength to strength. I mean it's just in sheer numbers, it's grown exponentially. The team, when uh, I first came to work here, was maybe <clears throat> half a dozen. Mm. Um, the target set by the health department has always been 12 to 15 events a year. And they, they're like peer education type, outreach type um, <clears throat> events? Yeah, well, what, what they do at events is... Yes, they're there to provide harm reduction information and education about safer drug use and safer partying. It's not part of the um, health department um, FASA funding and service agreement, but part of DanceWise and an integral part of DanceWise has always been the operation of what they call 
there, chill out space. And so it's a space, um, they work very closely with the first aiders who, yep. and the medics, the medical teams who are there often their most ardent supporters and, and a lot of the, the medical teams and first aid teams simply will not work an event unless DanceWise has also been engaged. It's so helpful for them to have DanceWise there to refer to for, for clients who may no longer need medical intervention but they're certainly not able to, to return to the party. Yeah, yeah. And so they they um are so their duties are just so so sort of relieved by the ability to be able to refer people into dance wise's safe mm. hands and safe keeping and dance wise over the years has become it hasn't just grown um in terms of quantity the quality of the service it provides um, it's become extremely professional and streamlined mm. and so their monitoring runs rings around a sort of standard medical sort yeah. of monitoring during the last summer you're probably aware that there were several deaths mm. at dance parties mm. and it, interestingly the um, Minister for Health in Victoria Foley actually stated in public that dance wise was the reason that there hadn't been any deaths in Victoria mm. which Excellent. was huge yeah, for us that for once that you know yeah, we're seen as the solution rather yeah. than the problem yeah um ha having said that dance wise still operates on a shoestring mm. and the bigger it gets the harder it is to sort of keep that shoestring from snapping mm. <clears throat> um, the team of volunteers is now 60 strong it mm. used to be sort of 6 to 10 yeah. and um, the team meet fortnightly and they all show up like the whole building is just <laughs> full of people, full of people. Oh, we're here, it's not a huge place <laughs> exactly. yeah. um, and so they really are an extraordinary group of young people they're not just committed, Annie. They are so um, focused. And some of them, their knowledge of um, the drugs that mm. uh, that have currency is encyclopedic. Like, they know more about novel psychoactives than mm. anyone else I've it. ever spoken to. Yeah. And they really do have their finger on the pulse. And, I mean... They have sort of opened my eyes to, to, um, in many ways, to the fact that we live in a very, very changing and different world. A lot of them, um, only buy their drugs online. That that they simply don't mm. deal. That buying and selling happens in very different ways, and yeah. it's not just sometimes. Mm. This is how it happens. It happens yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that. That this is something that distinguishes us from some of our sister mm. organisations, the drug user orgs in other states, that we have this um, <clears throat> this particular program that that doesn't just um, keep us in touch with the the world we live in, 
it, it is the injection of youth and mm. energy and mm. vitality and and it and given the nature of this community they do tend to be i mean it's a gross generalization but a lot of the team members are <clears throat> are um, highly trained professionals a lot of them are still at school but in the team there are doctors and pharmacists mm. and lawyers and engineers and there are a pretty impressive bunch. Mm. <laughs> They're also mad sort of um, LSD takers. <laughs> but, you know, they are a very skilled, it's a very skilled population to be drawing from. Mm. And their combined sort of talents and their combined sort of brain power, whenever they're brainstorming an issue, you know, it really is an extraordinary sort of discussion. I, I, I'm usually here in my office, and I, I um, I hear just mm. because of the noise. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a different thing, you know. Taking a bit of a sideways step for a moment, you know, the it's not the usual um, group that drug user organisations mm. can typically recruit in as volunteers. Mm. You know, I, I would I was just thinking about. Struggling to think of any what, any other organisation that has the range of professionals that you just talked about, Jen, as part of its kind of core membership and workforce in the peer volunteer capacity. Anyway, you know, it's a it's creates a different profile opportunity for harm reduction Victoria to say, look, it's not just these in inverted commas everyone you know fringe dwellers that we're talking about. Absolutely. It's a broad society Absolutely. that we're talking to and working with yeah. and. Yeah. yeah. So I think we haven't begun to tap into the the potentials here. Mm. And what what is um, what does <coughs> fill me with joy is to see um, dance wise um, as part of this organisation that that the team members wear that badge with pride now, yeah. and that there's no sort of distancing themselves from it and that they do see that um, we are all part of a, of a harm reduction yeah. sort of team and that yes um, you know there are differences but yes there are also there's also huge commonalities and that um, that harm reduction works in their community just as it works. Yeah in other communities of people who use drugs. Yeah. And so I think that that's been a really healthy sort of cultural exchange on both sides. I think that it's given um, our more historical sort of perspectives a bit of a new lease of life. I mean, it's also that we're living in an age of polydrug use yeah. and that those clearly defined categories are no longer very indicative of reality. Or if I mean, they ever really were. I mean, we've always possibly, struggled, I think, haven't we, yeah. to kind of get that message across that it's really quite unusual, always has been unusual for someone to just use a one right. substance. Yeah. They might have a you know, favourite or a you know, right. primary drug of choice, so to speak. But, but just you know, that concept, this is another the drug of, of choice, mm. I think, is almost anachronistic mm. that... Mm. It, it, it is um, the patterns of drug use that we observe are so much mm. more opportunistic mm. and it really is 
what he was on offer. Yeah. And the, and I mean, it, it never ceases to amaze me that it does extend as far as a, a committed opiate user settling for methamphetamine, if that's all that's mm-hmm. available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That sort of, that used to be a fairly sort of clearly defined yeah. sort of yeah, grouping exactly. of, of yeah. preference. But mm. even that one has yeah. gone, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? And, yeah. and people sort of come and go across those divides yeah. Yeah. quite quite sort of um, seamlessly. So yeah. I think that it, it is also indicative of that, that we're, we're seeing uh, it's not just that... Um, that this organisation has brought these sort of um, separate cultures closer together. I think that in itself is indicative of the world we live in, that there is more overlap and that people are sort of picking and choosing quite a quite a sort of an often an exotic cocktail of mm. different drugs mm. and it could include anything from injecting mm. and different means of administration mm. that might include injecting of some substances and mm. not others mm. so Jen in I mean sort of leading on from that I guess um, harm reduction Victoria along with a lot of other uh, peer-based drug use organizations in Australia have traditionally, found you know primary sources of funding if you like in sort of bloodborne virus prevention and uh you know uh testing treatment those sorts of areas um but i guess with what you've said around dancewise changing drug use patterns and also sitting alongside the fact that you know hiv rates continue to be predominantly very low amongst people who inject drugs the new hepatitis C treatments they're saying potentially hepatitis C elimination as a public health serious public health threat in 10 years or whatever what what do you how do you see the future of drug user organizations with all that said look I do think dance wise is the future of this organization and and I've said that I've thought that for a while now that it, it probably is the future um, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, <clears throat> look, I, I think that there will always be a part for prevention. Um, you know, it seems so obvious to me it's a no-brainer. Um, you know, and I, I guess I would like to see an even closer sort of integration of, of say, a, a, a program like DanceWise and the other work that we do. We certainly we certainly have um, included BBV prevention training uh, for the DanceWise yeah, right. team, which mm-hmm. never used to happen, and the DanceWise team provide training around um, novel psychoactive substances, so there's much right. more sort of um, integration mm-hmm. and crossover within mm-hmm. the, the staff the team, team. Mm-hmm. and a lot of the the um, the health promotion team who do most of the BBB prevention and treatment stuff. That, that a lot of them actually attend the events. Um, so I actually see that there is a potential yeah. for it to come together in a way that it hasn't. Historically, I do think we just need to continue the fight. I, I've remained very sceptical of these new hepsi treatments. I'm very happy to be proved wrong as much <laughs> as I have been. I, I remember I used to drive Margaret 
Hillard Med, you know, like are they really as good as they can't they can't they go, too good to be true. <laughs> We're talking to her on Thursday, yeah. we'll ask her again. How's that? <laughs> but I do think that um I'm very conscious I guess because I have got a bit of a research background that most of what we know about the new treatments are based on the trials. So I think that Yes, they they were the, the this is the first generation of results and um, experiences of treatment, but I think the story is a lot more complex than the one we've been sold to date, and and even in this first sort of where the floodgates have opened and this first um, <coughs> tide of people who have received the new treatments. The stories have been varied, and we're certainly aware of um, numerous people for whom um, experience of the new treatments wasn't a walk in the park. Yeah. And and I think the fact that it's been sold as such, so non-toxic and so non-invasive, that for the people who didn't have that experience, it was it was made worse. That I think each and every one of them said to me at some time, "What's wrong with me? Everyone else is, you know, flying through it yeah. exactly. Yeah. So and how I'm come not. I'm yeah. not? Yeah. And, and particularly in clusters of people who were sort of doing it, friends, you know, doing it round about the same time, and there would be, or well, I'm thinking of one group in particular where there were three or four of them and three of them were just look they were transforming in front of our eyes they started to sort of glow yeah right <laughs> and the other one was just going in the opposite mm. direction yeah. and every time we saw him he just looked worse and yeah. worse and worse and um and and that was his response it's like what's wrong with me yeah um and major issues potentially if couples are going through treatment together yeah. and one's doing really well and the other one isn't and there's not a great deal of support well, now and that's around my, these that's new treatments. How does all that get coped with? That now? all mm. of those more sort of socio-psycho-psychological mm. mm. sort of considerations mm. that were just sheer necessity with mm. um, the, the previous interferon-based treatments They've literally disappeared from the agenda. You know, the the Victorian Health Department has been very proactive in facilitating a series of treatment readiness meetings, you know, across the whole sector. It's like they're all there, all the usual suspects. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, virtually impossible to get any any discussion onto the agenda around models of care, mm-hmm. um, mm. certainly any suggestion of the need for peer-based support. Um, it just It's all just gone. And, um, it, you, you know, it, it is just the same old story that it's just not needed anymore, that mm. the drugs are so non-toxic that, mm. that people are just not going to need mm. um, any additional support. We're lucky to have this. We need this time. We need every minute of this time to start this process because so many of our 
um, community uh, light years away mm. from considering treatment. Mm. I'm one of them. I've never seriously considered mm. treatment. Mm. I know in that bell curve modelling, I'm one of the laggers. Well, <laughs> how do we get, get to the laggers? Yeah. Yeah. And how do we engage people who just decided a long time ago that treatment wasn't for them? Yeah. And so the mention of hep C treatment, they don't prick their ears up yeah. and, and sort of start listening. But in fact, the opposite happens. It's yeah. like, no, I'm not interested. And, and there's so much um, information to be undone. The mm. one thing everyone knows is a horror story about someone yeah. Yeah. Um, trying to survive yeah. the rigours of interferon. Well, I think another thing to be undone is what people believe themselves to be. There was a great paper just published early this month by um, Ben Cowie's team from Victoria looking at what proportion of people, using modelling, getting data from labs over a 10-year period, so what proportion of people who've received an antibody test have gone on to have follow-up tests? 60% or 58% or something like that have not had the follow-up test. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a whole lot of people out there who've had really poor testing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. repeat antibody testing yeah. no over and over again, mm -hmm. no confirmatory testing. And so that's a piece of work that mm. needs to be done mm. to get I'm people so good quality tests. So we'll mm -hmm. put the link on the website for the oh, podcast right. and I'll send it to you, Jen, Thanks, because it's, it's just... You know, we've heard this time and time again in interviews of people saying, I thought I was positive, and then something finally happened, and I got the, the next test, and I wasn't. And similarly, the Australian NSP study has shown oh, yeah. over time that poor um, repeated antibody testing, mm. no, uh, much poorer levels of confirmatory testing, and that's uh, particularly among people who inject drugs. So, yeah, and, and yeah, that trends was, are look. You know, there's some good data gathering to yeah. say this is a real issue. And that mm. was certainly, I remember part of um, my experience of the Healthy Liver Clinic all those years ago. Mm. It was such a nice task to be able to tell someone, well, no, you don't. Yeah, actually yeah. <laughs> And often it would have been something that someone had been living with with mm. ten plus years, or thought they were living with exactly, this exactly, terrible and made burden. decisions, possibly Absolutely. big ones, based on that. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So no, it's great that Ben's actually published yeah. some hard data yeah, to, yeah. to confirm. Yep. Yep, so we need to get it out there and, and get, Absolutely. get that. So, I mean, that's been one of the things that I've always admired about you, Jen, is that real connection between the research, your research interests and experience and the work that Harm Reduction Victoria are doing. And, and I think I've said this to you before, one of the first things I read when I started my job I in the sector yeah. was your peer education chapter. And uh, it just lifted veils from my eyes like oh my god this is how the world can work and and I think that as you mentioned you know Nick Croft's taking building into his work that this is the only way we can get this work yeah. done properly yeah. and efficiently and and expertly and to respect the people at the end of the chain as well is to have yeah. peer workers involved and so I mean what what do you see as the um why collaboration between research and frontline stuff is important and, and what's next on your agenda for that? Well, I mean, I have been delighted at um, the, the, the um, you know, these, the initial steps that have happened between us already, Carla and mm. Annie. Mm. I, I just think um, this is almost like a wish 
this sort of situation <laughs> I do and I guess um, it, it is very personal and that I've always had an interest mm. and a love of research that it, it's just an opportunity to sort of bring the two together and, and I guess because I have had the good fortune to work on both sides of the mm. fence if you like I, I just see how how just interconnected they are and that one one sort of can feed off the other in a really constructive sort of way. It's my great sort of um, frustration and sorrow almost that, and when I was answering that initial survey and, and when it came to questions about the barriers. The community it, engagement yeah, and research. It, is that when those moments come where um, peer educators, people working in drug user organisations, do engage with certain pieces of research, they're really like those, to use an American term, those aha moments, like people really enjoy it and really engage with it and just, you know, it's a revelation. It's like, oh, my God, this is so great. And then they use it. They use it a lot in their work, in their planning of things, in their presentations. You know, it does happen, but it's how you make that happen yeah. on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it's the responsibility on the, on the researcher side. You know, that, that summary I gave you of Ben Cowie's paper, like, I don't mm. understand the modelling in it either, but, <laughs> you know, I understand it enough to be able to yeah. give you that one or two sentence yeah. thing, and that's our responsibility to get better at that, mm. to do it. And, in, and now some mm. journals ask you to write what are the three or five points, highlights, you know, yeah. but often they're written in this kind of, ways that you exactly. go oh what does that mean I don't know so the I think there's still a lot of work for us to think not just about the academic audiences that we're writing for but talking well, it yeah. you know yes you, you, the you, might, yeah. do you, do you know yeah. much about this um lives of substance model? yeah yeah. So this Oxford model I didn't even realize it was a model yeah and um yeah, we spoke with Suzanne about it for a podcast that's right. coming up just at the launch of the, the oh, website. Great. Yeah, right. And so I've been on that advisory group, and so um, I do see that as a sort of a worthy attempt mm-hmm. to sort of get research out of the hallowed sort of yeah. halls of academia. And, and into a more sort of accessible yep. place. I just think it's such a great title. <laughs> yeah, I think apart yeah. from anything yeah. else, yeah. it's yeah. just yeah. a fabulous yeah. title. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think those sorts of mm. titles can speak volumes. And, mm. and you know, I just, I just like the sort of suggestion in it that, you know, we are talking about people and lives of, of some significance and that are and full work. and multifaceted yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah full of joy yeah, and love exactly. and yeah trying things exactly. and, like yeah. everyone else's lives yeah. out there you know absolutely. which is, is not often thought for yeah. years so Jen yeah. like we've we've covered you know traversed <laughs> wild amounts of ground in the, this we probably need to start wrapping yeah. up probably just uh, quickly is there sort of anything in terms of what's coming up next for harm reduction Victoria new campaigns new program anything else that you'd like people to know about through through this podcast that we haven't well look on? we do see the this Victorian parliamentary inquiry I don't know how much you know about it because no, it know. is just Victorian um, I remember when it was um, Steph 
the one of the dance wise coordinators told me about it. My response was as if, and she said, "No, it's happening." It's, and what's an inquiry into? So it's into illicit and illicit drug use in Victoria. So the terms oh, of reference very are massive, yeah, yeah. right? And um, but it does include policing. There, there are some more specific parts. I mean, I just think it's way too big, mm. way too big. And we've been working with. Uh, we've been working on a, on a special edition of our magazine okay. just focusing on the inquiry as much as it's a, it's a sort of pretty dry mm. topic for our sort of <laughs> loyal readers and members. We just figured we had to make um, a feature of it Absolutely. and That's to nice. try to sort of engage people mm. and to sort of uh, not just to know about it but to actually... Um, make submissions mm. and we're offering to help people oh. write them or right. they can speak them to us and we can put them together. Yeah. I'm hopeful that this parliamentary inquiry will involve a shift in <coughs> in in politi- the political sort of okay. thinking around pill testing, particularly with Caldecott on site and he does want, I mean one of their handbrakes of course is the limitations of reagent testing and Caldecott is now advocating for way more sophisticated testing on site. So right. this is David Caldecott who's an yeah. emergency yeah. doctor in yeah. the ACT yeah. Um, yeah. hospital system yeah. and who's been a very public strong advocate yeah. of yeah. testing. And he's a very, um, whatever you think of David, he's a very charismatic individual and I think um, for that reason, um, as well as many others, he he is a powerful champion for pill testing. Just just that he has the credibility of being a doctor. Um, and it's so worth it's worth having a look at him on Twitter. Actually, the stuff he's posting it's really interesting yeah, discussion around yeah, the issues and right. Yeah. And so, any other quick issues <coughs> out of out of that inquiry that you're really hoping for? Um, well, look, it is an opportunity to raise a lot of things. Mm. Uh, certainly, we will we will make the most of the opportunity. It's hard to know where to stop. Of you know, course. whether we should yeah. focus on two yeah. or three key issues, yes. or whether to sort of come in a scatter. massive so sort much. of yeah. um, myriad yeah. of, of issues. Okay. Um, and, and we still haven't really made that decision. We're covering everything in this edition of the magazine. Right. Um, and that when will that be out, Jen? In, in um, a month people. or so. Okay, so we yeah. won't, um, and the forum yep, as well, I think, will yeah. will um, hopefully be um, another way of sort of engaging people. Look, I, I am hopeful um, since, since... I do think that since DanceWise has been... Um, referred to as a solution to a problem and the problem of deaths with, yeah. within this culture it is a big plus for us and and I do think I'm hopeful that this parliamentary inquiry will help to further validate DanceWise and to sort of enable us to resource it properly because at the moment it's resourced primarily by the goodwill 
of the volunteers involved. Well, I guess that's a nice positive place sure. to to end uh, the podcast. Um, you know, as I said earlier, we've covered a huge amount of ground and yeah. it, it really fascinating some great stuff that um you know is really good to put on the record for like history as well you know things that people you know that get forgotten and that they're really important but also a really nice vision to new things in the future Mm. and I think it speaks volumes of your leadership Jen and and the strength of the organization that you know you've been able to provide us with such um a rich and amazing Mm. interview so thank you so much for your time (laughs) All right, signing out. Bye. For more information about this podcast, our guests, and upcoming episodes, head to httpcsrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.